You are listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, and this is Open Source RVA. On the January 24 edition of Richmond's Audio News Digest, we'll talk to Ellen Cockerham and Fran Coleman about Classical Revolution RVA, which seeks to integrate classical music with Richmond's music scene. Also on this episode, we'll present the second installment of Death Club Radio, special guest host Elaine Cameron Miles. But first, here are some of the top stories making headlines right now. Prisoners of the Richmond City Jail are given a voice through VCU's Open Mind program. The program was recently awarded $25,000 from VCU's Quest for Innovation Fund and holds college classes inside the jail. Abid Rahman tells us how the program has progressed and developed. The Open Minds program is not only held in the jail, but allows VCU students and inmates to engage in the educational process together inside a section of the jail known as the Sanctuary. The program accomplished a great deal with little economic support, says Liz Canfield, who co-authored the grant along with graduate student Seth Croft. In the grant, they discussed the institutional responsibility to do inclusive community work and an effort to create collaborative art related to social justice. Canfield teaches Intro to Gender Studies in the jail and says the course is dictated by the participants and their projects. It's a very different looking course than when it started. Um, You know, when it started, it was really more academic in terms of traditional academic. And then we said, well, what would happen if these, you know, topics for discussion emerged through the art-making practice? The program began hosting multiple workshops in the sanctuary throughout the week, from producing music to creative writing, dance, and visual arts, with the focus remaining on the different courses. Canfield says... The real value is through the dialogue and the conversation and that dialogue from a professor, you know, it's not, you know, I'm going to teach you something as a professor and you have nothing to teach me, is not dialogue. And so, you know, we've been really kind of restructuring that. Um, Sometimes I don't facilitate, you know, sometimes um, workshop members facilitate, you know, folks talk about what they want or need to read about. While Canfield worked on the most recent grant, David Coogan, a member of the VCU English Department and co-founder of the program, has been visiting the jail since 2006. He says there is a hunger for learning in jail that can only be appreciated by those who have been incarcerated. The program's composition of free and incarcerated students paired with the focus on the humanities and liberal arts make it one of a kind. Writing keeps my mind open. Dialoguing with other writers keeps it even more open. And I felt that if there's anything that the incarcerated and the free could share right away, it's that commitment to keeping an open mind about each other, about the future, about life. Coogan's focus on writing and reflection has helped inmates like Calvin Belton understand their incarceration. Belton says, Programming day started. Down there helped me more than anything <laughs> that... Had I been through, or should I learn, locked up, being in day program helped me more than all that because it made me reflect on me. Belton is no longer incarcerated or in the program, but has three stories he'd like to write. He also works with a non-profit youth group titled Black Top Kings and Queens. Being a part of the program really yeah, made me look at things a little more positive, well, a lot more positive, and 
want to do some things because when you can reflect back on all that negative and see that you ain't done as much positive as you want to, then you got to go out here and do something, and that's what I'm trying to do, man. VCU Open Minds would not have been possible without John Dooley, Director of Education in the Jail, and Sheriff Woody's pursuit of programs. Its faculty stresses the participation of its members in being present and making connections with each other. While the appropriations of funds from the grant are in discussion, large-scale collaborative art projects such as a 25-foot codex are in construction, along with increasing the sustainability of the program. With Richmond Public Media, I'm Abid Rahman. For more information on the Open Minds program, visit www.openminds.vcu.edu. A bill in the Virginia General Assembly seeks to make payday lender ID their customers. The bill, sponsored by Delegate Riley Ingram of the 62nd District, aims to prevent scammers from cashing checks gotten from unsuspecting victims, often the elderly. Delegate Ingram cited an instance where an elderly citizen in his district wrote a check for $250 to an unscrupulous handyman. So within 30 minutes after she called the bank, so probably within 45 minutes of an hour, he had already cashed that check and gone, put $250 in his check and in his pocket, and the lady never sees him again. That's the type of thing that needs to be stopped. Ingram says the problem begins with the payday lender check cashing policy, where identification is not required and where the money is withdrawn immediately for the payee. Specifically, Delegate Ingram wants payday lenders to require some form of identification, though his proposal does not require photo identification. Prior versions of the bill in past General Assembly sessions sought photo identification and met objections from groups seeking protections for undocumented workers. When I presented it three years ago, they were concerned about photo because I wanted photo ID, okay? But now I've taken photo ID out of it, just some form of identification or a thumbprint, either one. It's also important to note that this bill would not prevent undocumented workers from cashing hard-earned checks. They could use a thumbprint or any form of identification. For Richmond Public Media, I'm Cameron Vigliano. Ellen Cockerham, a violinist in the Richmond Symphony Orchestra and the director of Classical Revolution RVA, one of 30 Classical Revolution chapters worldwide, and also with Fran Coleman, a Richmond-based private voice instructor, a singer with Virginia Opera, and a founding board member of Capital Opera of Richmond. Thanks for joining us. Thank Thanks you. for having us. First, can you tell us about your backgrounds, what role classical music has played in your lives? Uh, sure. I started playing violin when I was five years old. I started on the Suzuki method, which is primarily by ear. Didn't learn to read music until much later. Um, then I decided to go into music school for college. I went to the Cleveland Institute of Music and got both my bachelor's degree and master's in violin performance. And then I moved to Richmond four years ago to start playing the Richmond Symphony. Awesome. How about you, Fran? Um, I've been singing my whole life. Uh, my mom said I used to sing to myself in my crib. So it's it's always been a dream of mine to, to perform, you know. And I sang jazz and blues before I was really old enough to be singing jazz and blues. And you know, toured in some rock bands for a 
while. And then um, when I was in my early 20s, I went back to school to learn how to really sing and uh, got my bachelor's degree in classical voice and did my master's also in vocal performance. And I'm currently finishing my doctorate in vocal performance at Shenandoah Conservatory. Great. So Ellen, I wonder if you could tell us about the classical revolution movement, Mm -hmm. big picture. What's its premise and what are its aims and how is it a revolution? Well, classical revolution started in San Francisco about seven years ago. Um, I think there are actually more than 40 chapters worldwide now. Yeah. I mean, that was a year ago that I checked, and I think they're sprouting up more and more every year um, around the world. The motto of classical revolution is chamber music for the people, and Mm -hmm. it's just the same music but in a different setting and brought to the people instead of asking them to come in to a concert hall and abide by all these rules that have grown around classical music over the last century or so. In Richmond, our specific goal is to integrate classical music with the rest of Richmond's arts and music scene, which is so vibrant, as you know, and people are so active and love to leave the house and support local musicians and local artists, and myself included. I love, you know, going to rock concerts, stuff in bars. And, you know, a year or so ago, I realized, why is classical music relegated to you know, downtown, behind closed doors, we should be a part of this. And so that's what we're always working to do with all of our events. Awesome. So you'd like it to be casual and participatory and... Exactly. And galvanizing and Mm -hmm. inclusive. Um, I'd like both of you to describe the type of value that you see in classical music. Um, What does it provide to the performer? What does it provide to the listener? I've heard several comments from um, people who come to our concerts at... Balasso, we, we perform at Balasso once a month, and some of them weren't really classical music listeners before, and they'll make it a point to send me a message and say, I feel transformed, or you guys are my favorite band in town, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think it can reach people in a very visceral way, even though there aren't always words or English words. Um, so I think it, it can really grab people immediately. Um, I've had the same experience with Capital Opera as Ellen has with Classical Revolution. Um, we, we tend to do the same thing, um, <clears throat> trying to bring uh, classical music to, to the, the everyday person, you know. And um, we did a burlesque show earlier this season where we had burlesque dancing with live classical singing. There were several people that came up to me after the event that probably spent their weekends watching NASCAR or football, (laughs) you know, that were dragged there. And they just were blown away uh, by how moved they were by the music and how they would never have expected that otherwise because they didn't have the opportunity to see it. They weren't going to go to a big venue behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. you know? And so um, I think given the opportunity, classical music can touch everyone as it has us if we just give them that chance. Yeah, part of what I hear you saying is that in present-day American popular culture, um, we're just unaccustomed to classical music or we're not exposed to classical music in informal settings. But classical revolution seems to indicate that it's more than just an exposure problem. Um, Your chapter's website says, quote, that there should be a buzz surrounding classical music, not a stigma. What accounts for for this stigma? stigma? Is it um, that we're not that we're not expecting maybe like the longitudinal structure of Mm -hmm. classical music or its occasional emotional unresolvedness or that there aren't always words or that there's many movements or um, because mainstream. Right. 
if you can speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I can't do much about the length of the music. That's, I guess, not really a stigma. It's just the <laughs> truth of the matter. Well, I think attention um, spans are definitely shorter yeah. nowadays than they used to be. You know, back sure. back when classical music was the contemporary, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't have TV or mm-hmm. we or, mm-hmm. you know, YouTube or the right. movie theater, you know, going to the to the opera house or to the concert hall was their outing. So to give them a three or four hour event was worth the money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was entertainment. That, that was, was their really whole evening. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. at that point they were even allowed to talk and eat dinner and, and make it a social outing the way we would still do at a contemporary rock concert. You know, no one just sits and listens. You move around and you talk and you converse and you make it a social event. And that's the way it used to be. But I think as it's evolved, it's turned into a wear a nice dress, sit down, and shut up, mm-hmm. you know? And young people feel that's not their type of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But one thing about the attention span is I think it is just knowing how to listen and what to listen for, which I think all comes back to exposure um, because we do go and sit through three-hour movies because we know what's happening. Uh-huh. Um, and so... I don't think it's a problem of people not being able to sit and listen. It's just if they had never heard it before, then it's maybe hard to tease apart what's going on in the music or the difference between Baroque and Romantic and different composers. And the thing is, the more you get into it, the more excited you become and the more you realize there is to learn. And, I mean, ourselves included, you know, professional musicians are always digging and and getting excited to, you know, quote, discover new composers to them and get really into one piece. And, you know, some of these pieces are very complex, but you begin to see that as a positive thing as you listen more and more. It never gets old. Mm-hmm. I find that uh, in me personally, um, coming from a contemporary rock background and moving into a classical background, it was hard for me to find the link between the two initially. But then as I continued to study classical music and really be immersed in it and listen to it and, and, and sing it as well, I realized that, you know, and it, for me personally, at least if I can find the, the heart and soul that I heard and felt in say blues in the night and translate that to queen of the night, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it all made sense. You know, the heart, the passion, the soul, the motivation, the moving of the music, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't matter if it's, you know, what station it's on. Mm-hmm. So, Fran, Capital Opera Richmond is also a chapter. It's a chapter of the nonprofit Capital Opera Companies. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the organizational philosophy and your role in supporting operatic endeavors for theater professionals and for the public. Capital Opera is a, it's an umbrella company. Um, it's a large nonprofit. Uh, it was started by a woman um, named Kathleen Torsha. I believe it started in California. Um, and since then, there have been chapters that have opened up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Raleigh, North Carolina, and now um, in Richmond. And uh, essentially, the, the mission or the philosophy is to bring opportunity to local talent and to enrich the community with that talent. Um, so whether it be in the concert hall or whether it be in Gallery 5 doing a burlesque show mm-hmm. or um, we did an event at 
RTP, uh, a cabaret at RTP. We're getting ready to do an event at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. You know, we're trying to corner the city, you know, and just put classical music in as many different venues uh, and expose as many different people to to it as we can. Mm-hmm. And, and to be using local talent, uh, whether it be VCU students or VCU alumni or maybe semi-professional musicians that have moved to the area that would just enjoy performing more, um, we're trying to utilize as much local talent as possible. And um, now I'd like to know how and when the Richmond chapter of Classical Revolution was founded. Uh, It was founded in October of 2012 um, because me and some other musicians of the symphony had been putting on monthly concerts at Balasso just Mm -hmm. as a way to reach out you know, it was our initiative to reach out to the community. Um, but it became difficult with, you know, our small pool of musicians to put on, you know, shows once a month. So I decided, or I realized that what we were doing basically was classical revolution, which I'd heard about through some friends in Cleveland. I would see their Facebook posts of, you know, classical music in bars. And um, so I was like, that's basically what we're doing. And if I call it that, then I can open it up to other people in the community, not just the symphony. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. We still have uh, several symphony players, but there are, again, VCU students, faculty, local freelancers that I didn't know were in town and are great. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's been really exciting to see so many musicians coming out of the woodwork. I think there's maybe 130 performers Wow. who who are, have performed or are interested in performing someday. Um, uh-huh. I never would have guessed there were that many in Richmond. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Terrific. So can you tell me about what's happened since? I know you hold a variety of musical events in places where people don't expect to hear classical music, and um, I'd like to hear about the philosophy behind the Paris concerts, which I read about mm-hmm. online. Very interesting. And your jam sessions and your more regularly mm-hmm. held feature at Balasso, Classical Incarnations. Yeah, Classical Incarnations is kind of our classical variety show. It's different, you know, forms of chamber music, but they're all performances, you know, that the groups have rehearsed beforehand. When I started Classical Revolution, I adopted one of their staples of activity, which is the jam session, Mm -hmm. which is basically a public chamber music party. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that we always do, you know, in each other's homes, just getting together to read great chamber music for fun. But we're just doing that in, uh, you know, Caritown Bistro is the next one. Um, And and then I incorporated an open mic aspect to that. Uh, So that's a great way for people to get plugged into the classical revolution. the Paris series is interesting. We've done a few installments. Um, the idea being the first half of the concert is classical music. The second half is another genre entirely. And I usually try to have some connection between the first half and the second half. Um, the first time we collaborated with a jazz trio, uh, Scrio, and they uh, we included the WC quartet on the first half, which people here as having, quote, jazz chords, only because mm-hmm. he used, you know, 11th and 13th, you know, chords. Mm-hmm. Um, then we did, we paired with uh, the local indie rock group, My Darling Fury. Mm-hmm. Um, and their bass player, Todd Matthews, is a classical, classically trained bass player, and he played in um, 
the Brahms B-flat sextet on the first half. And then he also played rock on the second half. So I think it's really cool to see um, that connection. And the whole idea of the series is, of course, to gain new audience, but to, to help people see a connection between a type of music they like and classical music, because mm -hmm. classical music encompasses such a broad range of styles that I think people don't realize um, that there's something in, in there, in that broad spectrum, that they can already latch on to. So speaking of events, Classical Revolution RVA and a few other community partners, including Capital Opera Richmond, will provide the musical accompaniment to the Mozart Festival. This Sunday, January 26th, Mozart will be 258 years old, and that warrants a celebration. So why Mozart? Can you tell us a little bit about his life and his musical legacy, either of you? I'll just say, first of all, why the Mozart Festival. Um, it all grew around the idea to play Amadeus at the Bird Theater, because I've been looking for a way to get in the Bird Theater since we started. And I don't think we're to the point where we can draw, you know, a thousand people <laughs> um, for a concert. But a movie, yes. And I think that the movie is in line with our mission, because I think it helps... It helped me understand mm -hmm. why Mozart. Why is he so Popularizing, great? Popularizing, yeah. Yeah. Um, because as a kid, you know, growing up in classical music, I thought Mozart sounded simple and boring. And then that movie helped me hear what was so ingenious about him as a composer, and it actually turned me on to him. So if you can do that for me, um, I thought, give the Greater Richmond that chance. I remember watching that movie, I think I told you, when I was eight years old. And I fell in love with that movie to the degree that I made my mom take me to Sam Goody <laughs> and buy the Requiem. At eight years old, because I fell in love with Mozart mm -hmm. from Amadeus. I mean, it's a fantastic movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when Ellen came to me with this idea, I was like, oh, yes, of course I will help. <laughs> Duh. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of like, well, while we're at it, why don't we just have an entire Mozart festival the whole day in Carytown? Um, starts at 11 a.m., goes all the way past midnight, actually, because he turns 258 at midnight. <laughs> so it's January 27. Um, so that's going to be very exciting. But, yeah, we'll have music throughout the day at various venues. So I know you've been planning this event mm -hmm. for a while, and it's a pretty extensive one. And there's many different components, chamber music, operatic performances. There's a, the magic flute story time, which is awesome, <laughs> um, a screening of Amadeus and more. Tell us about the process of pulling this all together and um, more about what the final product will be. Yeah, it started last summer just kind of, bouncing the idea off of people and meeting with people like Fran and, and other people involved in Classical Revolution and, and just brainstorming what can we do, what different types of audience can we draw. Um, and so you mentioned the, the magic flute at Cartwheels and Coffee. I'm particularly excited about that. I've always wanted to do an event for kids and also the kids' parents because they aren't allowed in the concert hall because they make too much noise. Mm -hmm. And so I just always want to expose them to music and it's okay if they wiggle, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that's gonna include an instrument petting zoo. There's gonna be crafts where the kids get to make um, little bird masks so they can be Papagena and Papagena's children, bird children. <laughs> um, there's gonna be a caricature artist drawing them as if they're in Mozart's time. Mm -hmm. um, and then the story will be read uh, by NPR contributor Mark Mobley, um, and and 
each of the principal characters in the opera will sing one aria. Um, this is actually kind of Fran's area. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to hear more about the opera that's going to go on. Um, essentially, um, what Mark is going to do is read a, a, a beautiful picture storybook, uh, which is a, an abridged version of the magic flute. And uh, it's got lots of fun pictures. And um, as he reads the story, um, whenever a particular character's kind of hit aria would appear in the opera, mm -hmm. they're going to walk on stage and sing their aria, and then the story will go on. So there's not necessarily a staging. It's more a story time, you know, where the kids will be there with their Papagano, Papagano masks, and they'll be listening to the story and, and seeing the pictures, but then also hearing the songs live. Uh, so... Um, so that's that's basically how it will go. And then, um, you know, at the end, Papageno and Papageno will do their duet and all the kids will wear their masks and it'll be a, a fun ending to the event. <laughs> that's terrific. Um, can you tell us about the venues and the times for the other events? For yes. the, give us the day's rundown. Sure, from the beginning. Um, like I said, it starts at 11 a.m. That's the kickoff performance at our presenting sponsor, which is Alternatives in Carytown, um, they are offering free coffee and pastries while we play Mozart string quartets. And then at noon, we'll have Anna Klein and brunch music at Can Can. Thank you. <laughs> um, at Can Can, that's going to be until 2 p.m. There's going to be a real grand piano there, you know, a small one. It's that's going to be a beautiful event. But there will also be one at Carytown Bistro, so that'll be a little bit lower key if someone just wants a cup of coffee, not olive brunch. Mm -hmm. That's a good option. Uh, at 2 p.m. is the Cartwheels and Coffee event. Also at 2, we'll be at Plan 9, and that's also going to be um, a vocal, you know, operatic arias. Um, ensembles. Or, sorry, ensembles, mm -hmm. duos, trios. Um, again, for someone, maybe they don't want to spend any money, they can, they can go in there, and Plan 9's been great to host that. Um, and then at three o'clock, we'll be at Chop Suey, and that's not a performance, that is actually a lecture, Wolfgang 101, um, by VCU's orchestra conductor, Daniel Misik, um, and he'll just be talking about what the big deal is about this guy, um, for those who might not know. Um, and then I'm really excited, at four o'clock, we'll go over to Babes, um, where we'll have a full orchestra. And Danielle and um, Aaron Freeman, the ass assistant conductor of the Richmond Symphony, will be leading us in sight reading selections from Mozart symphonies and overtures. So that's going to be just electric, I think, yeah. because we'll be coming together for the first time, literally the first time. Mm -hmm. Musicians are coming from Fredericksburg, Charlottesville, even Lynchburg, um, mostly Richmond, obviously, but people are really excited about this event. What's the idea behind the sight reading, just so that it'll be so raw and energetic? Um, because I f failed to mention, all the musicians are donating their time for this event, uh, even though many of them are professional musicians. Um, and it's really hard to get people, even if they're living in Richmond, together f for any amount of time. <laughs> they're very busy, you know, making a living, doing whatever. So... Um, for the larger ensembles, it's just not practical to have a rehearsal. Um, so 
but it's it's amazing what you can do sight reading because that is part of our training, you know, is to be able to play right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, and then do you want to talk about the the sure. six p.m. Sure. At six p.m., we're going to move back to Can Can, which is where we started at brunch, and uh, from six to seven, it'll be um, a little bit more of a formal event. Um, we're going to have a chamber orchestra, which will be conducted by. Um, I think we're we're going to have two different conductors that will split that event up. But that's going to be an Aria's event where we have um, primarily professional singers from around the area come in and prevent, uh, present um, kind of Mozart's greatest hits. And, uh, and so that's going to be really mm-hmm. a beautiful event. Mm-hmm. And so that'll run until 7, and then that'll segue straight into... 7.30 at the Bird Theater for Amadeus. After which will be an after party at Portrait House, and that's where the birthday bash is going to be. Mm-hmm. Is there a cake? There's going to be a cake. Okay. <laughs> um, well, great. Thank you so much for joining me. Are there websites where listeners could find out more information about Classical Revolution, Classical Revolution RVA, and um, Capital Opera Richmond, and the Mozart Festival? Yeah, everything's available on our website, classicalrevolutionrva.com. Um, under events, uh, it says Mozart Festival, and the whole lineup is listed there as well. Awesome. Yeah, as, and capitaloperarichmond.com also has a website where we have our upcoming events. Um, at capitaloperarichmond.com, you can see our upcoming events. Uh, February 1st, we're going to be doing the impresario at the Gelman Room at the Richmond Public Library. Um, March 2nd, we will have our Opera Through the Ages event at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Also in March, we're doing Neues Flood, which is a Britain opera in collaboration with the Greater Richmond Children's Choir at River Road Baptist. And lastly, uh, we have The Tenderland, which is our big closing opera for the season, and that'll be at the Henrico Theater. Great. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Welcome to Deaf Club Radio, where we talk over, learn about, and consider in ways both deep and silly the final journey. I am your hostess, Elaine Cameron Miles, and here we are standing six feet over another day. If you're new to the show, I'm a deaf professional, so it's, I feel it's better to hear this stuff from me than from the other kids on the playground or, God forbid, someone at work. Here at Death Club Radio, the goal is sharing information in a way that doesn't creep my listeners out too much. I invite a wide variety of fascinating and brilliant characters who work with death and dying as my guests or those who are just my Facebook friends, because people who work in death have a tricky schedule. This week on Death Club Radio, we have some thought-provoking deaths in Obituary Roundup. In the How We Die segment, we'll talk about choking. And I will try to answer tough listener questions in Ask Death Club. As always, at the end, we'll share our weekly Something Weird. Thanks for tuning in. Time to kick things off with Obituary Roundup. Obituary Roundup is where we share famous, well-written, or otherwise notable obituaries that have come to my attention. I like to call it Died Around the World. 
We're going to start obituary roundup today with an obituary from British author Elizabeth Jane Howard, which ran in The Economist. I actually had never heard of Elizabeth Jane Howard, but after reading The Economist obituary, I want to know who she is and I want to read some of her stuff. Just a quick quote from that obituary. Jane Howard was above all a novelist of emotional atmosphere, a distinct atmosphere one gets nowhere else in literature. Her characters are powerfully linked, yet not in tune with each other. The storyline, free of plot devices, yet gives a disjointed, out-of-time, out-of-phase quality that makes the prose shimmer. Here is a world that could go right, the reader seems to be told, that could be fit to relax in, but not just yet. Doesn't that make you just want to pick up her stuff and read it? Anyway, uh, if you have not seen any of the obituaries in The Economist, it's one of the things they are famous for. Yes, they are great on their global political and economic commentary, but they also write pretty much the world's best obituaries, and they write them about all kinds of people. So if you haven't checked those out in the past, I invite you to do so. They even have a book of the best economist obituaries that you can read. Now here's an obituary that makes me kind of sad um, because it's not much of an obituary. It's for Harry Earl Bennett Jr., who died at age 77 in Oxford, Mississippi. He died on December 22, 2013. He was a veteran of the United States Air Force and a graduate of Virginia Military Institute. Mr. Bennett had lived in Biloxi for many years and taught at the Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College. Obituary concludes with, there will be no service. Man, that just breaks my heart. I think people deserve a good obituary and a good service to honor their lives and so people can come together in their grief and lift up the best that that person was, to remember them together instead of just alone. Now, I do have to confess that Earl Bennett uh, was known to my family as the Earl of Bennett. He was a classmate at Virginia Military Institute of my father's, and he also has some fame. I was asked this year to do a memorial service, and in that memorial service, I gave a homily where I mentioned Harry Weathersby Stamps, it turns out the Earl of Bennett was a close friend and often lunch companion of Harry Weathersby Stamps. I'm sure you're wondering, who is Mr. Stamps? Mr. Stamps, who died on March 9th, 2013, is the man who had probably the most famous obituary of 2013, written by his daughter with input from Mr. Stamps himself. It is a long, beautiful, funny obituary that begins... Harry Weathersby Stamps, ladies' man, foodie, natty dresser, and accomplished traveler, died on Saturday, March 9, 2013. The obituary shares how Harry couldn't stand cilantro and arugula. It gave the recipe for his famous BLT. It talks about how he fancied smart women and includes a list of those in his family and others who he considered smart. It described his wife of almost 50 years as his main squeeze and talked about his lifelong love affair, openly talked about it, with deviled eggs, lane cakes, boiled peanuts, and Vienna sausages. They tell you how to pronounce it in the obituary. The obituary continues on saying that 
Mr. Stamps was a former government and sociology professor for Gulf Coast Community College. He was thoroughly interested in politics and religion and enjoyed watching politicians act like preachers and preachers act like politicians. He was fond of saying a phrase he coined, I'm not running for political office or trying to get married. He would say that when he was speaking the truth. He also took pride in his service during the Korean conflict, serving the rank of corporal, just like Napoleon, as he would say. Great obituary. If you have a chance, all you have to look up is Harry Stamps on the internet, and you'll see this wonderful obituary. And the Earl of Bennett found out that I had talked about this and called my parents, and he shared his happy life in the years that he'd known Harry Stamps. And so it just makes me sad that Earl Bennett has a very small obituary because he was a character and a delightful man and deserving of a service where people laugh and cry and remember who he was. Now, another obituary that fits in with this theme, this out of, well, everywhere, but the obituary ran in Decatur, Illinois' Herald and Review, John Robert Johnny Orris, age 86, of Sullivan, Illinois, died in South Lake Tahoe, Nevada. Oris had been a farmer and was on vacation when he choked on prime rib at an upscale steakhouse. His grandson, Ed Oris, was unable to revive him. Johnny was preceded in death by his wife. Choking is a terrible way to go. Tommy Dorsey died by choking at age 51. So did the playwright Hold Tennessee whoa, Williams. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, no, uh, no disrespect to uh, Mr. Williams, a fine playwright. But back to Johnny Orris, like, oh, I, I was listening to you talk about him, and it sounded <laughs> uh-huh. like a, a familiar story. Y- you're going to cut and into I, my Tennessee Williams Yeah, I this, did. Aren't I, you? Well, I had to think about it, and you're not quite telling the whole story of right. Johnny Orris. No, And I'm, I think I'm it's important because this has been a lesser issue, but has been an issue nonetheless. All right. All right. For my listeners who don't know who Johnny Orris is, Logan, would you – this really isn't about who he is, but would you tell us about how he died? Well, basically, Mr. Orris's uh, grandson, Ed Orris, entered him in a contest known as Get My Grandfather Laid off of The Howard Stern Show. The uh, contest basically ran off of a Bad Grandpa, the movie recently put out, in which Johnny Knoxville plays a grandpa doing, you know, malicious bad things to the public. So basically, in this contest, which Ed and uh, Johnny won, they were flown out to Las Vegas to partake in meeting young women, sex workers, legalized prostitutes, if you will. So the night before, um, unfortunately, the elder Oris, Johnny, uh, choked on a steak at an upscale restaurant, Harvey's, and never got a chance to fulfill his full prize. Yes. And that is what Johnny Oris has been talked about. But I, you know, I included him in obituary roundup. One, because I wanted to talk about choking and how people die from it, but mainly because I don't like that he only got a very small obituary and his family could not publicize his funeral because he had died in a way that the public decided was notorious, and so his family, to have some privacy, was not able to to engage in the public rituals that we do at the time of death. But I think you want to talk more about this, don't you? Yeah, and I mean... Like, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, yeah. So we'll come back to this. Yeah. Okay, Logan, you win. We're going to talk about this in Ask Death Club. How about that? We can talk about the ethics and morality of Johnny Orris's life and death 
Sounds good. All right. So we'll come back to it then. I'm feeling sexy now. This is our segment on how we die. In How We Die, we look at disease progression, issues of violence or accidents, current research, news, and even philanthropy. Today on How We Die, though, we're talking about choking. And our special guest is Andrew the Quiet Fireman. Welcome, Andrew. Hi. He's a man of many words, that one. Uh, Andrew, we're going to talk about choking in adults, what causes people to choke most often. So you're a fireman. Yep. Uh, So you've been doing that, what, 15, 20 years? Yes. And you're not very talkative, are you, Andrew? Nope. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to talk about choking. You see that in your work, right? Yes. So when you see them, are you having to do the Heimlich maneuver? No. Okay. Statistics have shown, and I don't know if your experience shows this, that mostly older adults tend to have choking problems when we're talking about the adult population. Have you seen this? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it sometimes. Basically, in you know, older persons, it's, you know, swallowing is not only a thing that involves the muscular network and all, but it's also a neurological network. Let's talk deglutition. What do you think, Andrew? Sound good? Is that when something becomes unglued? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something com- becomes unglued from your mouth. Swallowing is a process, as Andrew has already told us. It is not controlled by the digestive system. It is controlled by the nervous system. Deglutition is what swallowing is, and it's a three-part process. It begins with mastication, which is, Andrew? That's when you're actually chewing stuff up in your mouth. Thank you. Moving it around with your tongue and such. And uh, mastication is very difficult without the help of the salivary glands, which provide the water of the process. So that part is voluntary. Your chewing is voluntary. And the first part of the swallow is called the buckle. And the buckle is when your tongue pushes the food backwards up past your soft palate, and you begin the swallowing process. Part two is involuntary. By the way, I learned all this in seminary. Um, Part two is involuntary. It's the pharyngeal stage, and uh, that involves a bunch of brain stuff that I don't get because they didn't teach me that in seminary. And then finally, part three is the esophageal stage of swallowing, where we have peristalsis, a wave of contractions down your esophagus that gets the food into your stomach. Now, since we have Logan in the studio today, and we have Andrew the Quiet Fireman, I would like to do a little Death Club Radio first, which is I would like to have a a medical, let's do a little medical staging here of swallowing. Shall we, gentlemen? Why not? Sounds good. They're excited. Okay. For any of you out there that would like to uh, try some home anatomy yourself, the process that we're about to go through, you can actually try as long as you have someone that you trust enough to put their ear to your chest. In the first process, which is known as the buckling of the tongue, basically you have your friend, loved one, family member, or person that you pay a little bit of money to put their head up to your chest and listen for the initial sound of you swallowing. That is the first stage. In the second stage, it'll be a sign process and it will be a waiting procedure, as this is where the neurology comes in of the brain telling the body what to do, as it usually does. In the stage three, this is where the liquid will reach the stomach of the individual. This is where the person that is checking you should change their head from their throat or chest area to your stomach. Count down from one Mississippi all the way until it reaches around four or five, and then you'll know when it is reached. 
This sounds like so much fun. I think we need to do it here. We should. I think that's a great idea. We've got Andrew, the quiet fireman. Logan, you can call call the moves that's on great. it, and I'll do the swallowing. Sounds All right? Great. Andrew, are you excited? Oh, he's quiet. Okay, Andrew, ear to my throat, please. And Andrew has his ear up to the neck area as Elaine ingests her water. Do we have the buckle of the tongue, Andrew? Oh, we have the buckle of the tongue. We are now in stage two. The water is now traveling through Elaine as Andrew's <laughs> head proceeds down her body. <laughs> All right. He's got his ear on my chest. You ready, Andrew? I've got him in a death grip. Round two. Do we have middle passage, Andrew? We have middle passage. All right. That is stage two, and here we are now moving on to stage three. The grand finale. The final countdown. The final countdown. You ready to start counting? Let's count. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi. Up and around five Mississippi, the liquid reaches its destination. And I have neither choked nor died. Did I do that successfully, Andrew? I think you swallowed successfully. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Andrew the Quiet Fireman for coming in for that. And uh, Logan, thanks for making sure that everyone at home could experience it completely. What we were trying to show in the studio by the Swallowing Olympics we held was that swallowing is a complex process. It's not just food going down the water slide of your throat. Now, this complex process kind of works out as a ballet of physical and neurological processes and, of course, digestive enzymes. So anything that would dull your neurology is going to mess with your swallowing. This includes alcohol use. Alcohol use limits the gag reflex. We find that many people die uh, from a combination of too much alcohol and choking on their own vomit. This comes from not being able to control the reflexes that are supposed to keep you from swallowing your own vomit. There are also neurological disorders that will mess up your swallowing process. ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, is an example of this. Alzheimer's disease, anything involving a stroke, also Parkinson's disease, can all limit swallowing function. And finally, any disease or injury that has damaged the muscles involved in the process can keep you from swallowing easily and can make your risk for choking higher. This includes cancers of the head, neck, or esophagus, or injuries that are received during any kind of violence to the head, neck, or esophagus through accidents or through other activity. So when we look at the death of John Robert Orris, the concern about his choking It could have happened for a number of reasons. Perhaps he was not used to drinking alcohol and had some wine with supper, which then made it more difficult to swallow the prime rib he had. Perhaps he wasn't used to eating red meat that's difficult to masticate. Any number of things could have happened, including a very likely scenario, which is just that he laughed. Mr. Orris was on vacation. He was very excited about what was coming ahead in his days, and he might have just laughed and swallowed at the same time. No matter how you write it, it's a tragedy. What we're hoping at Death Club is that in knowing about the swallowing process and choking hazards, that you won't die that way yourself. 
So, can we get down to the nitty-gritty of, of basically... You want to go back to Johnny Orris, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I, I want to go back to Johnny Orris. I, I think that, you know, the, right. this poor man... Okay, all right. Know, we we owe it about. to him. We, we owe it to Mr. Orris to talk about what's going on. Well, then that's what we're going to do on Ask Death Club. Ask Death Club is the portion of our show that deals with ethics and etiquette. Sometimes it's about dealing with the gross, but mostly it's just dealing with the things that make people uncomfortable. So... Hit it, Logan. What do you want to talk about? I mean, I, I think there's a couple factors here that we should go over, um, you know, not to take the situation off of Mr. Orris, but I want to talk about his grandson real quick, um, just because I think that he's gotten a lot of really unnecessary heat. For those of you that don't know, Mr. Orris's grandson actually went and fulfilled his side of, you know, the prize. He claimed his grandfather's prize. In other words, um, he engaged in legalized sex yes, with a prostitute. Yes, for, and, and the key mm-hmm. word I think here is is, is legalized. You know, mm-hmm. like everyone's bringing up the morality and the issue of prostitution, but I think that's the key word in this situation. And so I why just, do you think, what do you think all this smoke is about, about the grandson well, I seeing think, the prostitute? Well, I think it's just like with everything else in our society, you know, it's like we, we have societal norms and then anything outside of that gets chastised. But don't you think the grief aspect and the death aspect is what's really murking up the waters? Well, yeah. And I mean, it's like he's he's being criticized for how he went about his grief. But I mean, he's the one that has to live with it. He's the one that lost his grandfather. And whatever he finds therapeutic, I, I think he should be entitled to. Sex is in the hierarchy of needs. It might not be in the bottom pillar, but it's still necessary to human involvement. If your grandfather passed, you wouldn't stop sleeping or eating. So I don't see why his grandson shouldn't go on with life as normal as it can, especially if it's something that's he's doing to mourn his grandfather. Mm-hmm. Some would, some have said, some would say uh, that he honored his grandfather by doing this. What do you think about that? I, I wouldn't necessarily say honor. I think you're getting a little hyperbolic there by saying that he honored him by, you know, having sex with uh, <laughs> with a really good looking with a professional really good looking sex worker professional sex worker mm-hmm. but i would say that uh from his grandfather's standpoint would his grandfather have wanted him to sit in the hotel room and and, and cry and and lose a day of his life or would he want him to, to live to the max of his ability and you know i think like by doing that he honored his grandfather i wouldn't say that necessarily having sex with the girl that his grandfather was going to have sex <laughs> well, with. Well, hopefully that yeah. did not take place. Yeah, but, that would, no, she that was in mourning. Creepy. You know, and that's, that's one thing that uh, kind of bothers me about it is uh, Johnny Orris did have, he developed a relationship with uh, this woman, and they exchanged emails for a full month before he came to the ranch. He was not, he did not seem to be, whatever you want to say about professional prostitution, he did not seem to be a man who was objectifying her. He got to know who she was, she got to know who he was, and they became, at the very least, friends. Uh, and she's quite upset about his death. And uh, as it seems to be that most of the people on the Stern show and anyone who was involved with this uh, are very upset that Johnny got died. He came out as a nice guy. I mean, that was what people said about him. I mean, and, and that's just another thing I wanted to bring up. Um, you know, we were going to glance over this man, and I just had to bring this up. And I didn't bring about it to discuss morality of, of prostitution and what healthy you know, sexual relations is. I brought this up because I knew absolutely nothing about this man and 86 years of life was basically summed up in a two-day incident. And I just don't think that that's fair to the individual. Um, and it's just like he's become the butt of a media joke, and that's what his existence has become. 
you know, you said he was a farmer and a grandfather and all these things, but I didn't know any of that. All I knew was, you know, this old man choked on a steak when two days later he was supposed to go sleep with a prostitute. Yeah. And that's what he's been summed up as. Right, and that, that isn't about his life. And I, I, find, I find that very offensive too. But I think another aspect of it is in death and dying, there's thought to be a death of your sexual person before the death of your actual person. And I think there's a discrimination against older people being sexual people. There's also a discrimination against people of different ages being together. Now, yes, money was part of this relationship, but the woman did seem to genuinely like Mr. Orris and he her. So, I mean, why are we vilifying him at the end of life? Because the last woman he was interested in was probably 50 or more years younger than he was and a prostitute. Well, I think it's because our society vilifies everything that doesn't fit into our manufactured morality. Um, you know, here's an old man and a younger woman, and people can't seem to think that there could be any legitimate interest when everybody clearly has said that he was an engaging, interesting, kind individual. And not everything is aesthetic. You know, maybe there was a connection in a friendship communication kind of way. And not everything, again, has to be physical. Maybe there wasn't a physical attraction. You know, he's an 86-year-old man. She's a generation or so under him, but if they got together and hit it off and in the profession she's in, obviously she's met her fair share of men, so if she saw something in him, merited it enough to communicate with him for over a month before they were even supposed to do anything, I would say that there's something there. And it just goes back to, you know, people want to get laid themselves, but they don't want to picture their parents having sex. Kind of how this situation yeah. is, you know. You, you know, you don't want to picture an 86-year-old man being like that but why is that wrong why is it wrong to picture your grandfather right. getting frisky essentially right why why do we have to have sexuality be something that's just part of youth that we imagine is just part of youth because that's not the way it is and death is not just part of being old i mean young people die all the time we've talked a lot about choking uh, on this episode you can choke at any age to me the combination of dying in a way that people are afraid of, choking, and in public, and also dying in a public way because you were about to do something that uh, had been publicized. I think people have a hard time with it. But to me, the dying and the sex are really keeping people away from the point, which is Johnny Orris lived. Johnny Orris has died. We should honor Johnny Orris. I agree with you. Um, and again, I just, I, I feel like, you know, we, we've done this man a service by you know, remembering as more than just that guy that died, you know, right. on that stake, on that competition. Yeah. Well, the Brits have a great word for this. They call this death by misadventure. And I think that's how Mr. Orris would like to be remembered, that he was a man on an adventure, and he was still seizing adventure at the end of life. God bless him. God bless him. Okay, how much time do we have left here? Oh, wow. Is, is that your watch? My new watch. Yeah, that's a pretty nifty watch. What's the story on that? Thank you. Well, this is my new watch my mom gave me for Christmas. For those of you who are at home and can't see it, it has a black band and a red face and a great big 27 written on it, which brings us to our daily something weird. Our daily something weird is exactly what it sounds like. Something that has to do with death and dying that's just a little bit off the beaten path. 
So today I'm wearing this watch my mother gave me, which she gave me because it is uh, part of a Swatch collection called Generation 27. One of the reasons mom gave it to me is because it nods to the notion that it takes a man 27 hours to do what a woman does in a 24-hour day. So <laughs> thanks, mom. But also, the watch is based on the urban legend that of the 27 Club. 27 Club includes uh, a bunch of musicians who have died over the years at the age of 27, including Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, Amy Winehouse, and Jim Morrison, all who died at 27. And guess how many of those died from choking? Brian Jones technically choked on water in that he drowned while under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Jimi Hendrix choked on his own vomit. Janis Joplin just had a heroin OD, and Kurt Cobain died by uh, suicide by firearm. Amy Winehouse by alcohol poisoning, and Jim Morrison in a bathtub. So there you have it. Uh, the 27, as I like to remind my children, just tells you that if you are creative, talent, uh, and an artistic personality, that drugs and alcohol are probably not your best friend. So thanks, Mom, and thanks, Logan, for noticing my lovely watch. Hey, it's a nifty watch. That wraps up our program this week. Many thanks to WRIR, my sound engineer, Jack, my editor, Chris, and thanks to Mark Ingraham for the music of Bungalow 6, which you hear in the background of Death Club Radio. Thanks to Andrew, the quiet fireman, and Logan. We always appreciate your help. Thank you for having me. Join me next time on Death Club Radio when I will investigate something scary, I'm sure. Until then, stay alert and stay alive. Bye, y'all. And that's our show for Friday, January 24, 2014. I'm Don Harrison, and my co-hosts this week are Chris Dovey, Brittany Tracy, and Elaine Cameron-Miles. The Richmond Public Media News team is Cameron Vigliano, Anafrio Castilla, and Abid Rachman. The show is produced by Jay Westerman and Jesse Johnson, and that guy playing a cello naked at that secret house show behind the poodle parlor? It's Mike McKenzie. You know, listener, we'd like to tell you where to go. Why, to rvaopensource.com, of course. That's where you can grab a hold of breaking news and podcasts of past open source RVA episodes. While you're there, hit the Donate Now button and help to keep this news operation hopping. Hear that? That's the closing bell. Time for us to skedaddle. Be good to yourselves out there. And thanks for listening to Richmond's Audio News Digest, Open Source RVA.